Hello everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there, I'm your host Simon. What happens here is one of my writers, in this case Kevin, thank you Kevin, has written me a script with what I believe is, uh, this feels like a very, very YouTube true crime title, doesn't it? The Rare Case of Ellen Fryer. Um, feels very, uh, I don't really know what a rare, I mean I guess it's like an unusual case, a weird case. All of these words, unusual, weird rare, creepy, mysterious, do great. So it's always good to throw those into a title when you can. It's what I do, you're welcome, and you're probably more likely to click on it. So, uh, the rare case of Ellen Fryer, thank you Kevin, I'm gonna read it. Uh, If you're new here, the format is, I will read it, I've not read it before, it's a cold read. We're gonna learn about this rare case together, everybody. It's gonna be fun, and then afterwards, our wonderful video editor, Jen, is going to, uh, well, do the video editing and the audio editing and make it sound wonderful. Let's go. Despite what Sigmund Freud would have us believe about our innate, eatable desires. There seems to be no empirical evidence to suggest that children actually want to murder and replace their parents. <laughs> yeah, like, murdering parents is a rare crime. That is very, very rare. It's not all the time, Sigmund. What's that one he said? Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Was that actually Freud? I don't even know. Great quote, though. In fact, parasite, the killing of a parent, is the rarest type of murder, accounting for only 2% of homicide cases in the United States. That still seems high, like one in 50 is people murdering their parents, holy sh**. In 2017, the FBI reported that there were only 186 cases of patricide, the murder of one's father, and it is one of those cases that we're going to discuss today. While patricide itself is extremely rare, there are still enough of them to perform some statistical analysis. For example, the vast majority of patricides are committed by perpetrators who are males, who are between the ages of 18 and 30, who have a history of mental illness and frequently commit murder with a knife. I feel like this could just describe murderers, though. Isn't it mostly men, 18 to 30, mental, some sort of mental illness? Is that true? I guess if you're a murderer, it feels true, doesn't it? I don't even know, though. And I would guess knife crime is more common than gun crime just because it's easier to get knives, but who knows. Today's case checks none of those boxes. (laughs) Thanks, Kevin. (laughs) <laughs> really led me down the garden path with that one, didn't you? Making it among the rarest of murder cases. In the early... Oh, of course, Ellen Fryer is a woman. What are you talking about, Simon? Did you even pay attention to the bloody title? The Murder. In the early morning hours of October the 2nd, 2017, Aaron, a relatively recent case, Aaron Fryer was asleep on the couch in his Medford, Oregon home with his three young daughters in their rooms. He had briefly jostled awake when there was a bang in the hallway and his daughter Ellen, or Ellie as she went by, told him she was going to the bathroom and had accidentally kicked a trash can. Aaron told her to stop scaring him as there had been a break-in attempt in the house the day before. Whoa. No wonder he's nervous, Jesus. He laid back down, and it wasn't long before the sound of snoring was coming from the couch yet again. Less than an hour later, the aluminium baseball bat that Aaron kept by the door for protection came crashing down on his skull. Oh my god. Forget a cold open. Kevin's just like right into it. He's been, he's had his head bashed in. As the bat came down on his face a second time, he was able to yell, Who the f is there? But the bat came down again and again and again and possibly again but it was definitely either five or six times aaron's shouts had turned into gargling as blood filled his throat and then there was silence oh my god how old's his daughter and did she just murder her dad <laughs> ah 
His body was wrapped in a blanket with a towel wrapped around his head. Okay, so she's older. I, I've got like a two-year-old child. She doesn't have the strength to murder me, even if she wanted to. And I hope she wouldn't want to. And a towel was wrapped around his head to try and stem the outpouring of blood. Someone had already pulled his car around to the door, and he was carried to the trunk by two people, while the third tried to clean up the large pool of blood by the door before taking all the cash from Aaron's wallet and performing two other tasks in the house. The trio of conspirators then drove away, dumping Aaron's body down a dirt embankment, along with his clothes and other evidence, and then abandoning his car elsewhere. Okay, well, you've not done a brilliant job, but you've done it way too close. And as we've always discussed, you have to burn evidence. Throwing it down an embankment does not count as disposing of evidence. You have to burn it with fire. We know this. There are rules. When the police arrived at Aaron's house to perform a welfare check due to noises a neighbor had heard coming from the house, specifically the gurgling of blood in Aaron's throat, Jesus. Hi, police. I think you should go check next door. It sounds like there's a man drowning in his own blood. They saw signs. Also, how loud was this bloody gurgling for the neighbors to hear it? <laughs> This is a brutal murder. They saw signs of a disturbance, but nobody was home. It would not be long before police picked up three persons of interest who were found traveling on foot together. It's important to note that most of the information about this case comes from the interrogations that followed. While there was evidence found related to Aaron's murder, none of the three people interrogated ever went to trial. As such, there are certain allegations that will come up that have never been proven or refuted in a court of law, so it's impossible to speak on the veracity of these claims. So essentially, Kevin's saying that this is going to be an episode that is filled with allegedly's because like when it's been proven someone's gone to court and they're a murderer you can call them a murderer but you don't want to call them a murderer if they haven't been convicted of murder because i don't know that's probably is it defamation what's that crime where it's like you talk about someone and they get really upset and they suffer material loss something like that it should be pretty obvious what i'm referring to but i'll be sure to mention it again when it comes up the interrogation of ellen fryer it was nearly four and a half hours into Ellie's interrogation as she sat at, sat at the table sobbing, her jacket drenched with her tears while she scribbled aimlessly on some paper using crayons that the police station had provided her. Okay, so immediately I was like, wait, why is she in the name of the episode? She's drawing with crayons. Did she murder her dad or is this just other people murdering the dad? Someone who wraps up a body with a towel is not the same person who's drawing with crayons at the police station. Number of times my daughter has drawn with crayons? Many. Number of bodies she's wrapped up in a towel? Well, hopefully zero. The interrogator had left the room, but Ellie had requested not to be left alone, so another female officer was standing in the doorway to keep her company. The allegedly pregnant 15-year-old girl, oh my god, stopped drawing momentarily to turn to the officer with her tear-filled eyes and asked, Can I have a hug? And the answer was, of course, no. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. There were why is a 15-year-old drawing with crayons? <laughs> Police officers, do you not have kids? Like <laughs> a 15-year-old comes into the station. It's 2017. Like give him a game con. I don't know. I was gonna say a Game Boy, but that would be really out of date. I always give them a Nintendo Switch, something. They're a bit old to be drawing with crayons, aren't they? There were three interrogations taking place simultaneously, and the other two suspects were not questioned for nearly as long as Ellie, so what made her so special? Well, the goal of an interrogation is to gather information and ideally elicit a confession. There's a lot of criticism of police interrogation methods and false confessions, but that's not what was at play here. The reason Ellie's interrogation took so much longer than the others is that she was completely full of 
and the police wanted to get something out of her at least vaguely close to the truth. For the first five minutes, Ellie was in the interrogation room. She sat silently alone and emotionless, completely unfazed by the events that had taken place only seven hours earlier. When Detective Stephanie Smith first entered the room, Ellie put on her best little girl voice for their conversation, one of several tactics that she would employ to try and garner sympathy. Yes, I realize she genuinely is a little girl. She's not a little girl. She's 15. She's just a girl. She's a teenager. <laughs> if I was 15 and someone called me a little boy, I'd be like, you could f*** right off, mate. <laughs> I'm a man. <laughs> I'm at least a big boy. But I promise you, the voice she's spoken for the first few hours of interrogation was entirely for show and markedly different from the normal speaking voice that she would later use. As Stephanie entered the room, the conversation began like this. Hi. Hello. Are you Ellie? No. What's your name? I have the right to remain silent. Holy <laughs> That's some straight gangster. I already get the feeling that Ellie may be a psycho. Like a psychopath. Like... She's manipulating people. She's mo- she doesn't really. She's got this emotionless vibe. She potentially bashed in her dad with a baseball bat. Now you absolutely have the right to remain silent, which the detective agreed with. But it's probably not a great sign when the first word out of your mouth, other than hello, is a lie. After being read her rights, she was told that she could remain silent, but they still had to know her name. Laws about this vary by state, but in Oregon, you in fact are required to give your name and address if you are arrested. Ellie identified herself as Rain, an 18-year-old who had completed high school and graduated with honors. I don't believe this is one of the rules for casual criminalist yet, but we definitely need to add, don't lie to the police about easily verifiable information. <laughs> I feel like, in a situation like this, shut the f- up, just exercise your right to remain silent until you have spoken with a lawyer just you know i feel like that's the overarching rule here it's like if the police ask you can this is america you do have that right to remain silent i see on every cop show shut the f- up until your lawyer arrives if you're innocent you probably have no reason to be lying to the police at all but still shut up until you get a lawyer thank you kevin but if you're guilty definitely save your lies for things that actually matter since ellie didn't want to cooperate why don't we peek into one of the other interviews perhaps one of the strangest police interviews ever conducted oh my god this is i'm fascinated by this case so far this is super good i mean it's horrible someone's been murdered but it is like why is she lying what's going on did she murder her dad i am on the hook kevin interrogation of russell jones from the moment the three were arrested 22 year old russell jones was clearly extremely cooperative and amicable while he was open about his hatred for the cops that were nothing more than high school bullies with badges he seemed to believe that all of the police he interacted with during both his arrest and while in custody were among the nice ones as soon as he entered the back of the police cruiser he was happily chatting away with the arresting officer i think this is also like another thing when you take uh, a group and you take an individual it's generally bad like you can say i hate cops but you probably don't hate cops on an individual basis i mean obviously in recent years there have been some especially out of america some examples of truly awful cops but generally it's like you know you don't want to lump people together in a huge group because the vast majority of cops is it why is this a controversial i feel like i'm treading on eggshells here when it's like the majority of people are good people the majority of cops are probably good people but i feel just you know with the news in the last few years it feels even controversial to say that which seems a bit insane but most cops are out there doing good right i often say things like this and people in the comments are always like simon you're so naive it's beautiful and i'm like 
I don't know. Are most people good? Jesus, is that so naive? <laughs> ah, <laughs> most people are interactive. Uh, interactors seem nice. Of course, you run across the occasional dickhead. Now that's okay. Sometimes I'm a dickhead. During their conversation, he revealed that like police are supposed to be, he was also in the protection industry. Sort of. His actual source of income was disability payments in the total of $735 a month, but he would lose all those benefits if he was employed, so any work he did had to be done under the table, something he probably shouldn't be telling the police. <laughs> it's like, well, you're innocent of murder, but we're taking away your benefits. <laughs> you shouldn't have told us that. It didn't matter, though, as he admitted to never having received monetary compensation for his protection services anyway. Well, he's probably not got anything to worry about, does he? When asked what, he's like, well, I would work under the ta- <laughs> I'd work under the table if I could. It's like, okay, why are you telling the police about your desire to commit a crime that you're not committing, mate? <laughs> when asked about what kind of protection he offered, he mentioned he worked with people 20 and younger, presumably mostly female. Specifically, is he saying he's a... I mean, I feel like I'm jumping to a conclusion here, but doesn't that feels a bit pimpy, doesn't it? Specifically, he worked with people who would illegally be considered runaways to find them places to stay and hide on the basis that they have to have run away for some reason. Okay. This is a very strange story. I'm thinking, like, I feel like I jumped to conclusions here. And often my jumps to conclusions are kind of correct, because I've done a lot of these episodes. You're like, that's them. That's the murderer. They're the murderer. Today, I'm like, no, no. No, I'm wrong all round. Maybe I'll just shut up and read the bloody script. To be fair, he has a point. Obviously, we're not talking about a four-year-old that throws a tantrum wants to run away because they couldn't have ice cream for dinner. But when a 15-year-old girl wants to run away, there's probably a good reason for it, and legal emancipation is difficult to obtain. Upon arriving at the station, Russell was taken to the interrogation room. When asked to sit down, he tried to assert his dominance and control by saying that he wanted to stand, but suggesting the officer sit down. This is like very amateur, like asserting of dominance. <laughs> it's like I'd rather stand. Maybe you should sit down. The officer just does the face palm. Like, oh god, here we go, <laughs> bloody children, bloody teenagers. That <laughs> the officers like, I have to deal with this shit when I get home. No, I don't want to deal with it at work. When the officer informed him that he's not allowed to sit unless Russell is, they both took a seat and began chatting. Excellent display of dominance, Russell. <laughs> Russell remains very friendly and chatty with the booking officer, and when the two investigators came in, the officer asked to speak with one of them outside. It's like, she's trying to assert dominance, and he's like, mate, why don't we both sit down? He's like, okay. Do you want to have a nice chat? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Bravo. Good dominance. This is when things begin to get strange. It's not. Al- it's already strange, Kevin. Russell was well aware that he was being recorded, having commented on the video cameras when he was first brought into the room. He chomped away on his disappointingly soggy fries and began talking to himself. First, he looked at the cameras and commented, These are actually nicer than the hospital ones. He then noticed the Ethernet jacks on the walls and playfully stuck his pinky in one of them, pretending to electrocute himself. At one point, while deep in thought, he also said out loud, It wasn't really self-defense so much as it was defending her. The goal of isolating a person during an interrogation is to make them uncomfortable and bored. However, because of his combination of unmedicated bipolar disorder and severe autism, Russell was far too capable of amusing himself for this tactic to work, not that underhanded tactics were needed, as he has been fully cooperative thus far anyway. There's some speculation from professionals that Russell may have been suffering from schizophrenia and was having conversations with someone that wasn't really there. Personally, I disagree, because even if he had experienced schizophrenia, he didn't appear to be suffering at all, but rather enjoying himself thoroughly. Do you necessarily need to be suffering to be a schizophrenic? I mean, 
if the voices that you hear are telling you that you're great and awesome and you enjoy talking to them i don't think that makes you any less crazy does it i don't know but more it'd be awesome if you did that just that voice no it wouldn't be awesome that's a bad thing to say it would be better if you just had voices talking to you be like simon you legend you're gonna do a great job at work today you're a brilliant father you're going to be so successful and awesome just like and be like thanks voices <laughs> you're so nice to me rather than like you know the movie version of schizophrenia where it's like kill everybody now but more seriously, this is just a thing people do, right? I'm reminded of the supposed confession into a hot mic by Robert Durst during a documentary, but to me it just sounded like he was vocalizing a conversation he was playing out in his head, and the confession was an accusation from the person talking to him. Yeah, I talk to myself all the time. I'll just be wandering around the office and being like, hmm, yes. And I, I, I don't even know what I say to myself, but I do. I definitely talk to myself. I'll definitely be saying things. And I'll be like, oh, that's really annoying. Or it's like, wow, that's a great job. You know, I'll be talking to my computer. Just from like, uh, I'll get an email. I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. Like, why am I saying this out loud? There's no one here. My voice is already tired from recording all the hundreds of videos that I make. What am I doing? <laughs> why do we talk to ourselves? Although, look, if you're in a documentary and you're talking to yourself into a hot mic about how you kill people, probably a bad idea, Robert Dest. Hell, five minutes ago when I took a smoke break and was thinking about this part of the script, I found myself saying the words I intended to write out loud. It's certainly possible I have undiagnosed autism, which is another speculated cause of Russell's talking to himself. This means practicing future conversations. But I really thought, <laughs> does anyone else practice like past conversations <laughs> when you're in an argument with someone or like you're doing something? And they're like, oh, it would have been great if I'd said this. That would have been such a good comeback. And it's like minutes, hours later. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm so slow. Why doesn't my big brain work fast? But I really thought it was a normal thing that people did when they were alone. At least Kevin and I are on the same page. Hey, people watching on YouTube, let me know in the comments. Do you talk to yourself? <laughs> Just me and Kevin and Russell. The Interrogation of the Joker Unable to grasp the gravity of the situation he was in, Russell began acting as if he was a supervillain. Even though he was in custody, he felt he was in a position of power over the police. He pivoted from looking into one camera to looking at the other, saying, I don't care if you're a fed, I can still twist your little mind with a maniacal grin on his face. He followed that with, don't piss me off, while staring menacingly as possible at the camera. At this point, Russell remembered that there were still fries left to eat, so he started munching away and talking to himself again. He commented to himself how nice the officers he had dealt with were, stating about one of them in particular, he even brought me food last time. He brought me food this time too. Maybe I should do it more often. Nah. <laughs> After finishing his food, he went back to his supervillain frame of mind and began making demands of the police. Mate, you, you don't understand the situation you're in. You're not in a movie. You've been arrested. It's not like in the movies, mate. He claimed that Ellie was under his protection and that she was to be released to him. He began gesturing on the table as though physically laying out the evidence he had given them, insisting that it was worth much more than soggy McDonald's. In typical Monty Burns fashion, he steepled his fingers while speaking, a gesture that demonstrates perceived dominance over the person being spoken to. It was at this point that Russell finally made a discovery after looking again at the recording device when he felt gave him the upper hand in the negotiations <laughs> okay we got some pictures here i assume jen will include these yeah it's a little bit weird guys it's, it's, it's i mean this guy's a bit weird though isn't he he's like what are you up to 
That's right, while the cameras were beyond his control, Russell had the ability to control whether or not the police could actually listen to what he was saying. He repeatedly turned the device on and off, at one point asking, Do you want to see a magic trick? in his best Joker voice before waving his hands over the device and turning it off in one impressively smooth motion. Feeling more powerful than ever. His powers turning off a tape recorder. Russell continued to make demands while also implementing a time limit. Looking at an imaginary watch on his wrist, he gave them exactly two hours to release Ellie and the third participant to his custody. After threats and demands didn't work, he began making a series of pig jokes and comments about the donut-eating cop stereotype. He also attempted to sing pig-themed nursery rhymes, but got very confused as he couldn't remember the words. This is such a weird situation that's going down. When the interrogators finally returned, they jokingly commented on the recording device being off and then finally got to questioning Russell properly, getting his account of events for the first time. Despite all of his demands and his numerous boasts about twisting their minds, manipulating them, being a master of reverse psychology, and even threatening to release my bipolar, he once again became extremely cooperative. While he had been at the scene, Russell was not the murderer. He said that when he walked into Ellie's house and saw Aaron's body, he immediately ran to the bathroom to either throw up or just in case he did. This made sense as the Medford police had described the murder victim as the most gruesome thing that they'd ever seen. These guys have... Uh, I mean, someone getting their face bashed in with a baseball bat is is grim. Is grim. There's definitely been grimmer on Casual Criminalist count yourselves lucky <laughs> the action of running to the bathroom and a later comment he made about being freaked out that they were driving with a dead body in the car were the only indications any of the three would ever give about feeling any remorse or guilt over what happened despite our forthcoming russell was however there was one small twist that the police encountered while trying to get everything from him that they needed for a conviction as a conspirator to murder it seems like he's just talking about how he's committed this crime does he not realize that like helping someone dispose of a body is also a crime that's probably gonna land you in jail for several years mate where is your lawyer in this whole situation and also too didn't kevin say at the beginning that none of these guys ended up in prison or convicted which is kind of amazing so like based on what we've read so far while it was clear that russell understood the concepts of the law and things being unlawful that's not good enough it was much less clear whether or not he understood the difference between right and wrong given what ellie had told him about her father he seemed to struggle with grasping the idea that murdering him was wrong well that's understandably something to grasp with like we don't know anything about the father yet but i mean is it so much of a stretch to say that there are some is it is it it feels bad to say it but aren't there some people who kind of deserve to get murdered like let's just take the most extreme example does does hitler stalin pedro lopez do these guys deserve to get murdered i'd say yes i don't think i'd have any problem murdering those guys i think you'd be doing everyone a favor <laughs> simon just don't don't admit to all of the oh, pedro lopez is still alive <laughs> allegedly he's probably dead now but he never he's he's loose if you don't know who pedro lopez is you have not watched the most horrific episode of casual criminalist i can't say i'd recommend doing so it's horrible link on the screen now if you're watching probably not i'm not gonna link to that don't link to that the interrogation of ellie Fryer, part two 
The initial interrogation of Ellie, humoring her fake name of Rain, continued. She tried her best to act concerned and surprised, but was an absolutely dreadful actor. She employed every trick she could think of to both garner sympathy and get herself out of interrogation, though she continued to answer questions despite her initial desire to invoke her right to remain silent. Ellie insisted that she had gone walking alone when ran into friends, feigning ignorance that her father was dead. She also did her best at pretending to be distraught upon learning that her dog, Sparklebeak, was no longer at the house, even though both she and the interrogator knew that Ellie had taken the dog with her. Paying up her fake emotional distress, she ignored the questions being asked and stared off into the distance, whispering, That's my baby. Where is my dog? She continued evading questions and giving false answers, claiming that the third person in custody was her boyfriend, but that she'd recently dated someone else for a couple of weeks named Justin. When asked for Justin's last name, she said she didn't know. The interrogator found that to be highly dubious, but to be fair, in college I was dating a girl for about three months before either of us thought about asking the other's last name. That's kind of amazing. Nowadays, though, it's like you immediately know that person's last name, because as soon as you meet someone, you're like, let's be friends on Facebook, at least back in the day. It's Facebook. I'm not on Facebook anymore. Is Facebook still popular? Are people still doing that? Like when you first meet someone, it's like, I'm on Facebook, right? That's what happens. Though she lied about not being in a relationship with the other suspect, she said the one thing that definitely was truthful. Her father did not want her to be dating him. Aaron had even allegedly pulled a gun on her boyfriend to keep him away from her, and I don't really blame him. When we get to him, Simon, I suspect you'll agree. It was at this point that Ellie began opening up about her father. Again, because none of these three ever went to trial, somehow, the truth of these claims has not been established. The one thing we can say for certain is that this was not something she made up on the spot. These allegations were things Ellie had both told Russell and her boyfriend months prior. So it was not an improvised plea for pity like her continuously pretending to choke on water or whining about being overtired. Ellie claims that her father was an alcoholic and he was abusive to her verbally and physically. She claims that he would call her things like cut and and had struck her on multiple occasions. She also claims that he was very rude and abusive to her about the way she ate because she was a vegetarian and had been since she was five years old. Throughout the interrogation, she slipped in comments about her father being abusive every chance she could, even when it wasn't really relevant to the question she was asked. An hour into the interrogation, Detective Stephanie finally revealed that they spoke to someone at school and they knew that she was not a graduate, but in fact a 15-year-old sophomore. Ellie continues to try and change the subject, increasing her fake coughing and mentioning that she knows about minors that were smoking marijuana that she can rat on. Ellie, you don't understand negotiation. <laughs> And you're like, yeah, you know you've been arrested for murder, and she's like, yeah, can I get a deal? I can tell you about some people who've been smoking pot. And this is like 2000 and, what was it, 2017? I don't think they care. I don't think the police care. I'm pretty sure you can only get a deal to avoid prosecution when you help nail someone for a more serious crime. Yes, so trying to get out of a murder charge by saying you know some kids that were smoking a bit of doobie is pretty desperate. Yeah, you've got to like, if you're doing, if you're, if you're like murdering someone... You better have someone above you who has, like, murdered more people. Because then you could probably cut a deal. If you're not afraid of getting murdered in prison by whoever those people are connected to. Because, oh boy, <laughs> I've seen Breaking Bad. They can get to you. That scene with the watches where all those people are murdered in, uh, in prison at once in Breaking Bad on the orders of Walt White is insane. That's, like, one of the most... In I, I remember watching that show and being like, holy this is mental. After a period of fruitless interrogation, Ellie was left alone and given some paper and crayons to draw with. It may seem like an odd choice for a teenager, but the hope was that whatever she drew could provide the investigators with some sort of insight. 
it did not. Also, unlike pencils or pens, crayons are dull and fragile, as well as being non-toxic, so she wouldn't be able to harm herself or anyone else with them. I have to say, I'm glad we got an answer as to why she was given crayons, but it's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Yeah, let's give all criminals crayons, and maybe they'll just doodle their crimes. <laughs> really, guys? When Stephanie returned to resume questioning, she was now armed with all the information from Russell and Ellie's boyfriend's interrogations. Able to ask more forceful questions, she finally was able to get the story of the murder out of Ellie. It just wasn't a true story. Ellie claimed that Russell went into the house with a machete and that afterwards she saw it covered in dried blood. She also claimed that she saw them put a tarp into the trunk of the car and she suspected her father was in the trunk, but she didn't know. In her story, everything that happened was Russell's idea and he acted entirely alone, with her oblivious to what was going on. When they stopped on the dirt road, she insisted that he alone took her father out of the trunk. She then talked about their subsequent trips to Walmart, where they purchased makeup and hair dye, as well as their stop at the SSI Supplemental Security Income Office to sign her boyfriend up to be able to collect Russell's disability checks. This part of the story was true, but the detectives wanted to press further on her lies. When confronted with questions about the baseball bat, Ellie reverted back to her original childish voice and demeanor, feigning surprise and asking if that was what Russell used, stating that her father kept the bat for protection. The matter of her father's abuse came up again, and Ellie decided to lay out more allegations. She claimed that wherever she was sleeping in the house, her father would come and lay next to her and start masturbating. Stephanie asked if her father ever ejaculated, and this seemed like a question that Ellie wasn't prepared for, as she almost immediately broke down. She confirmed that he had, and that it got on her hands, tears streaming down her face, as she described going to the bathroom to repeatedly scrub her hands because of how dirty and ashamed she felt, wondering why he did this to her. She wept heavily, struggling to get out the words, Fathers aren't supposed to do that to their daughters. When asked if she wanted some tissues, Ellie said she'd be fine, jokingly commented through the tears that her jacket was waterproof. Since nearly everything Ellie said up to that point was a lie, we can't be certain if this story is true. Friends and family of Aaron continued to stand by him, claiming that he was an excellent father and that he loved his daughters more than anything. Well, it does seem like Ellie is a big old liar, so, I mean, you always like, what's that thing? It's like, you should always believe the victims. And it's like, should, but what, what, there's no evidence. And also, Ellie makes up all the time. Like, everything she said is a lie, even her name. If it is true, it definitely speaks to motive as to why an extremely bright girl who appeared to be living a normal life by middle-class gifted child standards would want her father murdered. I'm not going to make a judgment as to whether or not Ellie's claim is true. All we can say for certain is this. I've watched nearly nine hours of CCTV footage of this 15-year-old girl, and this is the only instance throughout the entire ordeal where she displays anything that could be considered genuine emotion. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify is an all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Not just that, if you've got an established business and you're running on some old janky platform, why not switch over to Shopify? They're going to make everything much easier. Look, Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources that were once reserved for big business, so upstart startups and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and easily stay informed. Shopify will be like, yo, you just made a sale. And you'll be like, nice business, baby. That's what's going on, especially with Shopify making it so easy. Look, Shopify powers millions of businesses from first sale to full scale. You can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. 
And of course, they provide all that stuff you'd expect. Detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. All the basics and more. I say it's like all of this stuff was only available for like big businesses spending tens of thousands of dollars on like complicated e-commerce platforms in the past. And now Shopify is like, yeah, 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 you can do it all with us and it's better and cheaper. Why not? So go to Shopify.com slash casual, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial. You'll get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Shopify.com slash casual. Again, Shopify.com slash casual. And now back to today's episode. The Interrogation of Gavin McFarlane Gavin was an unusual boy. Surprise, surprise. All of the characters in this story are really unusual. Putting it nicely. He was described as not being popular, but getting along with a lot of different groups of people. He was also known for his short temper and his tendency towards violent outbursts, something that became worse at the age of 17 when he stopped taking his ADHD medication. His school had done several evaluations to gauge whether he was a risk to himself or others, and there was an understanding among students that if there was ever going to be a school shooter, this was the guy. Oh my god. (laughs) It's so intense. It's like, ah yeah, he could be the one who shoots up the school. (laughs) <laughs> Hilarious and worrying. But no one actually thought he'd do something like that. He would comment about wanting to kill people, and even said it would be easy to get away with it, but no one took him seriously. He probably didn't take it seriously himself either. And I think that's the majority of cases. Like, if someone says, like, yeah, I could kill, it's like 99.99% of the time they're not going to kill anyone. But those are the people who will kill someone in, like, the 0.001% of the time. Aside from being a bit odd and needlessly edgy, he was also somewhat secretive in his associations with people. He had various groups of friends that didn't know about each other. That's not necessarily abnormal, but he had at least two separate friends that had come forward saying that Gavin lived at their house, neither of whom knew about one another. It's like being a homeless teenager and having two families all rolled into one. There was just one quirk about Gavin, to put it extraordinarily charitably. After Gavin turned 18, a friend found out that he would often hang out in front of the middle school, to which he told Gavin in so many words, doing bro, and also, don't do that. That's right, at the time of Aaron's murder, Gavin was the 19-year-old boyfriend of the 15-year-old Ellie. Uh-oh, that's weird, dude, don't do that. Pretty sure, that's a crime. That's definitely a crime. They had known each other for a year and had been dating and sexually active for at least six months. Like I said, I'd have put a gun on him too if that were my daughter. Yeah, that, that, I would not be okay with this. <laughs> Dude, no. Aaron actually called the police on him for statutory rape previously, and Gavin had lost many of his friends and even dropped out of school three months before his graduation as a result of the well-deserved vitriol that he received when his classmates caught wind of the fact that he was dating a 15-year-old. How, you're committing a crime. Why is no one doing anything about this? As for his actual interrogation, he put up absolutely no resistance. After being read his rights and informed of some of the evidence, like that they had found Aaron's body dumped, Gavin immediately started telling exactly what had happened. He showed no remorse, calmly explaining what they did and what the plan was. He even mentioned that the original plan involved chloroforming everyone in the house before the murder, but that you can't buy chloroform on the internet anymore. This prompted a very genuine and understandable you say? Reaction from one of the interrogators while he confirmed that Gavin had intended to chloroform Ellie's two younger sisters. Bro. Bro. I mean, we're asking all these questions, like, phrased what the f*** are you doing? My question is, where the f*** is your lawyer? <laughs> Jesus. No, 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 yeah, 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 I, I murdered them, I wanted, I murdered him and I wanted to. And I was, I was gonna chloroform the sisters too. Oh yeah, and my girlfriend's 15. And she's pregnant. Ah! <laughs> 
Where is your lawyer? I mentioned before the Gavin was a loose cannon in terms of his anger issues, especially when it came to his friends or people he cared about, but this was well beyond anything he was known for. His typical reaction would be one, maybe two punches, and that was the end of it. I'm not saying that's cool or acceptable, but it's a far cry from murder. Interviews with his friends and family all stated that they believed Ellie forcibly manipulated him to do it, with one going so far to say that Ellie was 100% at fault. No such thing. No one is, like, I always think of car accidents. And it's always like it's one person's fault, you know. It's like people always say this. It's like, oh, it wasn't my fault. The guy rear-ended me. And that's the classic one where it's like, isn't... I don't know if this is actually true, but isn't it always like if someone rear-ends you, it's always their fault for not keeping a safe distance? But if you're just cruising along the motorway and you slam on your brakes for no goddamn reason and someone goes into the back of you, it's also... Okay, let's just say that it's 30% your fault. <laughs> so is Gavin telling the truth that he never wanted to kill Aaron? According to Ellie... Yes. After five hours of interrogation, Detective Stephanie finally got her to stop lying and come clean, albeit slowly and while still trying to minimize her part. Ellie claims that her original plan was to run away, but the Russell brought up the idea of taking care of Aaron. <laughs> We're going to take care of him. <laughs> It's such a weird phrase for murder. She also mentioned Gavin's hesitance, saying, I kind of forced Gavin into this, stating that she kept pressuring him. Where the f is your lawyer? <laughs> Nah, nah, nah. It's like, you didn't murder anyone. You could definitely, if you were Ellie in this situation and you lawyered up and did it right, you could probably get away with this. Although, apparently they all get away with it anyway, because Kevin says it never went to trial. Even if you plead guilty, it still goes to trial, right? 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 God, simple knowledge there. Um, She could kind of get away with this if she had a, a lawyer being like, shut the f*** up, Ellie. Jesus. When asked how she felt driving with her dead father in the trunk, Ellie described it as an adrenaline rush. While the two men were dumping his body, she said that she threw the bat high into a tree while just relaxing and enjoying nature. Very curiously, near the end of her interrogation, she mentioned that she wanted to be tried as an adult. <laughs> These people are insane. Gavin was the shortest of the interrogations, as he immediately folded under zero pressure, and he had no imaginary friends to talk to or magic tricks to perform to pass the time. He was also the least interesting, unless you really want to watch a murderer curled up in the fetal position crying. So, with all the details from the confessions of the three co-conspirators, let's dive into exactly what happened, sans a refrain of the bloodier details from earlier. Yes, good. Although this one, like the bashing in of the face with a baseball bat, I'm like, okay. Yeah, no worries with that. That's an easy one. Because of the horrors that I have read. The Timeline Months before the murder, Ellie begins planning to run away with her boyfriend, Gavin. <laughs> boyfriend slash predator. To escape her allegedly alcoholic and abusive father. I did that. We did an episode previously and it was some, some like young girl was being groomed by an older man. And uh, the script kept referring to her as a boyfriend. And I kept correcting it to, like, Predator. And I was like... And people were like, Simon, well done in the comments. And I'm like... <laughs> I don't know. I felt like it was a bit sad that I needed to be congratulated on that. When it seems blindingly f***ing obvious. And it wasn't like some 18-year-old, 17-year-old thing. It was the stage where it's like... It was fucking weird. Gavin enlists Russell to help them run, and Russell brings up the idea of killing her father. After he mentions it a couple of times, Ellie thinks it's a good idea, but Gavin really doesn't want to. Ellie continues to pressure Gavin, 
with no success. To put more pressure onto Gavin, two weeks before the murder, Ellie fakes a pregnancy. With Gavin finally on board, they begin planning the murder, which includes violating rule number one of the casual criminalist in Russell's handwriting. There are pages and pages of plans and diagrams, just in case the confessions weren't enough. <laughs> So we'll add it to the rules. Don't draw diagrams of your crimes. Uh, so shall I, shall I read this? I, um, Jen will put it on the screen now, but just for our audio listeners, I'll read it if I can. The handwriting is bad. Get RV in my name. Get RV fix Batories tires. Load RV. Get stuff from my storage. Get Ellie. Let Mr. Fryer know she's at this. Take out Mr. Fryer quietly. Oh, Mr. Fryer is uh, is Alan. I guess. Take him out quietly. Go back to Mr. Fryer's for gun. Guitars. Ellie's dog. Alcohol. For Gavin. (laughs) Take out my dad. Mariposa house. 5pm. Get items out of use from... Okay, look. He's basically just writing... (laughs) What are you doing? This is like writing down your crimes in explicit detail. Hire an RV. (laughs) Okay. You can see from that portion of the written plan, the original idea was to kill Russell's father, but they obviously never got that far or have any clearer plans to do so as they did with Aaron. The night before the murder, Russell and Gavin attempt to break into Ellie's house to kill Aaron while she was still at marching band's competition. When they realize his girlfriend is there as well, they decide to abort the mission and try again the next night. The following night, October the 2nd, Russell and Gavin arrive at Ellie's house at around 1am. She passes bags of all her belongings out of the window to load into the car and Gavin sneaks in through the window. While they wait for her father to get drunk and fall asleep, they talk about getting married and what their future will look like. Well, you're going to have to wait a few years because you can't get married because that your current your relationship is a crime. Whatever they thought it would look like, they were wrong. Once Aaron is heard snoring, she insists on the baseball bat being used to kill her father. Ellie, you psycho. Gavin claims not to have seen her, so Ellie goes to find it, stating she'd be really mad if it's there. She retrieves the bat by the door and gives it to Gavin. He goes out into the hall, but it's dark, so he kicks a trash can and immediately retreats to Ellie's room. She covers for him, saying she was going to the bathroom, and Aaron makes his comment about the break-in the night before. They wait for him to fall asleep again, and at around 2.30 a.m., Gavin goes to the couch, assaulting Aaron in his sleep. He wakes up momentarily and shouts, but his life is quickly ended. Ellie grabs her father's keys to bring the car around and lets Russell, who really had brought a machete as a backup plan, in through the front door. Russell sees the gruesome scene and immediately runs to the bathroom to potentially vomit. Gavin and Russell wrap up Aaron in a blanket and wrap a towel around his head to soak up as much blood as they can. Gavin grabs his legs and Russell grabs under his torso and together they put his body in the trunk while Ellie goes back inside. She grabs a towel to mop up as much blood as she can and then steals all the money from her father's wallet, roughly $40. She then goes to say goodbye to her little sisters, telling them that she won't be coming back. She asks if they heard anything and they say they heard the father say a bad word, which means they would have heard everything that came after. The gurgling of blood so loud that the neighbor could hear holy there's gonna be therapy ellie then grabs sparkle beak and goes to the car (laughs) kind of like the name sparkle beak in all this horror it's like at least there's a dog called sparkle beak they drop off everything at one of the houses gavin stays at and then head to dump aaron's body they abandon the car and head to walmart so ellie can buy some makeup and hair dye but she gets wrong hair dye and goes back to return it just in case there was any doubt about their lack of remorse gavin could be seen on the walmart security footage smiling and sticking his tongue out at one of the cameras what are you up to? <laughs> what are you doing? 
The health and beauty section of Walmart usually has TV monitors showing the security feeds, as that section suffers extremely high amounts of shoplifting, so this would have been to amuse himself and not some grandiose statement about his contempt for authority or the high level of civilian surveillance. Um, also, real dumb. Dude, you just murdered someone. How about you don't go where there are security cameras for a while? After leaving Walmart, they headed to the SSI office so Gavin could be put as the payee to Russell's disability claims. Shortly thereafter, a police cruiser runs onto the sidewalk, cutting off their path. They're handcuffed and brought in for questioning. They just did such a shit job with this, didn't they? Getting away with murder was not as easy as Gavin had boasted to his friends that it would be. The Sentencing Oh, okay. So I guess there was no trial because they all pled guilty? Yeah, I guess the trial is what happens and then there's the sentencing, right? Really should know that. I got misled because when Kevin said trial, I was like, wow, they're getting away with it. But no, I guess they just plead guilty because, well, of course they did because they're all super guilty and they didn't feel like it would be a good idea to have, I don't know, lawyers? I mentioned that none of the three ever went to trial, but that's not because they somehow got away with this. It's because none of them were quite stupid enough to try and plead not guilty, especially after all three gave nearly identical accounts of what transpired in their interrogations. While there is currently a moratorium on executions imposed by the governor, the death penalty is still on the books in Oregon. Given their confused guilt and the risk of being sentenced to death, followed by the election of a more bloodthirsty governor, it was definitely wise to throw themselves at the mercy of the court. A fun little tangent for Simon is that Oregon has abolished the death penalty on three separate occasions, twice by popular vote and the third time by the state Supreme Court declaring it unconstitutional. In all three cases, voters chose to reinstate capital punishment, most recently in 1984. <laughs> Holy sh**. So it's like, yeah, we haven't had any bad crimes in a while. Let's get rid of the death penalty. And then some really bad fucker comes along and they're like, we're bringing it back just for you. In October of 2018, a year after the murder, Gavin pled guilty to murder and aggravated burglary. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Three months later, in January, Ellie entered her guilty plea for conspiracy to commit murder and aggregated burglary. She was sentenced to 25 years to be served in a juvenile correction facility until she turned 25, at which point she would get transferred to the big girl prison. This is insane. She's 15. I know she wants to be tried as an adult, but I don't think that should be the decision of the person who's looking to be tried. I don't think... I mean, obviously, she's conspiracy to murder. She's a murderer. Yes. Um, but sentencing a 15-year-old to, to life in prison is real intense. I do feel, in a way, the older you get, the pun more serious the punishment should, for crimes should be. Like, when you're 12, at least, or is it 10 or 11 in the UK, you're under the age of criminal responsibility, so you can't commit a crime. Then as a teenager and a, a young adult, you... Uh, have reduced sentencing you go to like up to the age of 18 because you're tried as a as a not as an adult and then as an adult you're fully tried for your crimes i kind of believe that people become less idiots over time so like someone or i guess this is true because there's like lean there's like um judges can make decisions about how much time someone gets but i think there should be more leniency for people in like their uh 18 19 early 20s and then late 20s and then 30s by the time you're 50 and you commit your first murder it's like you're like i don't know the more the older i get the more i feel like you know you know yourself you become more confident in who you are you become less of an idiot i feel like this should be like some sort of sliding scale right is that just me <laughs> or are we all like put the 15 year old in jail for life
However, her sentence was broken down into 20 years for murder and 5 years for burglary, and the 5 years for burglary can essentially be erased by good behavior. As for Russell, that was a trickier matter. I mentioned that it was unclear during his interrogation whether or not he knew the difference between right or wrong, and his case was delayed as he was evaluated to determine whether or not he would be fit to face trial. It was eventually determined that he was, so you'd have to answer for his crimes. Originally, it was reported in April of 2021 that Russell put in a plea of no contest and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. For anyone unfamiliar, no contest plea means that you do not admit guilt, but you accept that the evidence would most likely result in your conviction if it went to trial. It's a weird thing to have. Because a no contest is not a conviction, it does not go on your criminal record and cannot be used against you in the future. However, it seems that the original deal changed. Rather than serving 15 years without needing to have a conviction for conspiracy to commit murder and aggravated burglary, but who even cares at this point? Instead, Russell opted for a guilty plea with a 7.5 year prison sentence with the possibility of parole after three years. That guy got a good deal. Wrap up. I know how much you love these morally complex ones, Simon, so let's see if we can break this one down. Ellie, Gavin, and Russell all pled guilty to Aaron's murder, and rightfully so. But how guilty were they each? Gavin committed the act, but he was reluctant to do so and was pressured into it by Ellie. Some even say he was manipulated by her. She was, by far, the intellectual superior of both men involved, despite being an adolescent and them both being grown men. And with her intelligence, it would likely have been trivial for her to manipulate them as if she wanted to really manipulated them to murder there are people out there who are a lot smarter than me and i don't think anyone could manipulate me into murder unless it was like straight you know like we've kidnapped your family and if you don't murder someone we're gonna murder your family i'll be like where am i going boss (laughs) oh simon don't admit to your future crimes um but really this kind of really really i think they're pretty guilty uh But she was also an adolescent, and they were grown men, one of whom was sleeping with her. Would she have ever wound up in this situation if Gavin hadn't groomed her, becoming the boyfriend that her father disapproved of, to the point of calling the police on him? And then there's Russell, the one with whom the idea of murder instead of simply running away originated. Though most accounts claim all he ever wanted to do was help people and did try to create a shelter for homeless youths and run away, that's not the entire story. Whatever you thought about Russell and his wacky interrogation antics before, does your opinion change knowing that three years before this happened, when he was 18 or 19, Russell was twice charged and once convicted with third-degree sexual assault. In Oregon, third-degree sexual assault involves either a person who does not consent or is unable to consent because they're not 18. So, rape? You might be thinking that charge would apply if he was 18 and had a 17-year-old girlfriend, which is both accurate and something most people are willing to give a pass to. But what if I mentioned that that conviction had been accompanied by a third-degree sodomy charge, which was dismissed as part of the plea deal? Wait, sodomy's a crime in Oregon? (laughs) Guys, it's 2017, what are you talking about? And the third-degree sodomy charge would have meant that the girl was under 16. Well, yes that does change things because it takes it from like a 17 18 year old relationship to like a 15 18 year old relationship which is uh which is substantially more weird isn't it and does russell's diminished mental capacity and unmedicated bipolar disorder play into that analysis at all then of course there's a matter of ellie's motive patricide perpetrated by a daughter is too rare to have much meaningful statistical data but we still have some important information two known motives in separate cases for such a murder include a father who disapproved of the daughter's older boyfriends and prolonged abuse particularly sexual abuse we know <laughs> well one is like are these these are the two things one is like 
fine and one is horrible <laughs> it's like why did you murder your dad he disapproved of my father of my uh, older boyfriend why did you murder your dad because he's a uh, sexual predator and he abused me really different situations there we know she had one of those motives for sure and she alleged the other if the allegations are true how much is ellie to blame for wanting to run away but when presented with the option of murder choosing it instead of just running away to also protect her younger sisters from the same fate she suffered it's all way too morally complex but because simon and everyone in the comments needs the opportunity to disagree with me and i feel obligated to weigh in in my opinion gavin is probably the worst even if he was coerced into it to protect his 15 year old girlfriend and fake unborn child he was still alone in the room during the murder and also liked to hang around middle schools to try and pick up chicks he also had a 15 year old girlfriend who he made pregnant he's obviously the worst i don't think we need to weigh in on that one i have no issues with his sentence other than perhaps that there's the possibility of parole savage with ellie it gets more complicated if her allegations are false then she's at least on par with gavin no she's not even if the allegations are false she's 15 and he's was it 19 she's a kid she's a teenager she's like an edgelord teenager um who didn't actually murder anyone so not only is she younger she didn't actually kill anyone gavin is worse even if there is no sexual assault and if there is she's way worse she's even if there is she's slightly better still still not as bad as gavin i think in my opinion with gavin i'm fair to call it i think it's fair to call it like gavin's the worst we know he's the worst don't disagree with me with ellie it's more complex lying about both abuse and pregnancy to convince someone to murder your parent is beyond fucked up and she should have received a, li a life in prison for that if her allegations are true suddenly a situation becomes a lot more sympathetic but sympathetic or not she would still have been more than just an innocent victim who cried out for help and got in over her head she put the bat in gavin's hands and gave him his marching orders if her allegations are true i think her sentence is reasonably appropriate i would say her sentence is reasonably appropriate either way as for russell it all comes down to his mental capacity mm. is it no it's not it's not either way it's not either way it should be reduced it's i think it's appropriate even now i struggle with sending a 15 year old to jail for 25 years that feels really intense they're gonna be like 40 by the time they get out of prison which is mental and if the sexual assault allegations in there as well it should be less if that was proven it should be less much less much less god this is complicated as for russell it all comes down to his mental capacity since he was deemed fit to stand trial his sentence seems unconscionably light while he had the most passive role in the murder itself it seemed he did have the most active role in the planning it feels like he was given a lighter sentence due to diminished capacity but either he understood what he was doing was wrong or he didn't you can't decide that he only sort of knew it was wrong so you're only going to sort of send him to prison i don't see why not i mean it's th things are rarely black and white yes you can make a determination as to whether someone is fit to stand trial or not but it's often going to be a sliding scale it's not like yes or no there's going to be plenty of people i'd say most people when you try someone like this is going to be on the border that's why it's hard to make that decision that's why it's complicated i think it's reasonable that a judge in sentencing not a jury right in america judges do sentencing that's right right um I think it's totally fair to take that into consideration i think that's just if there's any moral to this story at all it's that next time i pitch a script to simon i need to choose a murderer that is a living embodiment of evil so i don't have to struggle with any moral ambiguity simon how about an episode on heinrich himmler <laughs> this has been an episode of the casual criminalist thank you so much for being here and watching and struggling with these moral quandaries together <laughs> 
God, this one was a ride, wasn't it? Uh, if you like this episode, please do leave a like and a comment if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening as a podcast, please do leave us a review. It really makes a difference. It gets us show in front of more people, which is always nice. Always nice. And thanks for watching. Or listening. I'm not forgetting you, podcast listeners. I love you too. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.